Matt, I hear that a symptom of being abducted by aliens is deja vu. Uh-oh. This is the, the Phantasmagorical Think Tank. What you are about to hear is segment two from episode six, but re-released as a standalone episode. The reason for this is uh, some people have been saying that our episodes are a little lengthy and it's difficult to have the, find the time to listen to an episode all the way through. So we're trying to listen to the listeners and give you some shorter episodes to get a taste of what we'd serve. Very nice. It's like a, a beautiful small plates restaurant rather than a huge all-you-can-eat buffet. So we've just talked about Rapa Nui, how aliens definitely did not help uh, build these stones. But that, of course, poses the question, Matt, why didn't they? Why aren't there aliens coming to Earth? Heck, why have we never detected any legitimate evidence for aliens? Where is everyone? Herein lies the Fermi Paradox. Going back to Enrico Fermi, creator of the Fermi Paradox, as you may have guessed by the name. That being said, I don't think it was Occam who formalized Occam's razor. I think there was a guy a few centuries later who, like, took Occam's work and then named the razor after him. Or, like, L'Hopital didn't actually invent L'Hopital's rule. But yes, Fermi, I believe, did invent the Fermi Paradox. What were you saying? He was an American physicist in the 1900s, and he's known for a number of things, mainly more like quantum things, uh, not necessarily subatomic things. Uh, nuclear power. He worked on the Manhattan Project, creating the first nuclear weapons. Uh, he also got, won a Nobel Prize for radiation technology and understanding how it works. But for this particular instance, he did take to space. Beautiful. So basically, there's a, a two-premise argument, the first of which is the universe is so old and so enormous, there are a hundred billion galaxies, uh, more than that actually, each with hundreds of billions of stars, and with current exoplanet technology, uh, we roughly estimate there's about a planet per star, so that's something like... Uh, 10 to the 22, yeah, that's around 10 to the 22 planets in our universe. So with all these planets uh, that life could evolve on and with all this time for life to evolve, surely there should be so many uh, intergalactic spacefaring alien civilizations that we could scarcely go a day without uh, interacting with some civilization or finding evidence of it. But therein lies the second premise of the argument. There is literally zero evidence for extraterrestrial life as of this recording what gives what's up what how how it can it be that what we would predict is not what we find well thinking about it from a numerical standpoint a man named drake frank drake another physicist in the 1900s tried to approximate how many civilizations would be at the technological and just universally intelligent enough point to be equal, at least, mm -hmm. if not greater than equal, to humanity in terms of what they know, what they can do, etc., mm -hmm. based on these, based on our knowledge of the expanse of space. 
You know, uh, I think possibly by coincidence in physics, when you do a problem that's based on rough guesstimations, that's actually called a Fermi problem. So it seems everything keeps relating back to Fermi, wouldn't you say? Yeah. So basically what Drake was doing was he took a bunch of factors that one would consider in terms of like the creation of life. Uh, what are the odds that life would form? What are the odds that there are the right conditions on the planet for life to form? What are the odds that after life formed, it became intelligent? What are the odds that after life? <laughs> and so on and so forth. I believe the Drake equation, as it's called, has something like nine different variables. And taking all those variables and turning them to their lowest probabilities. And of course, this is all conjecture. We don't just have a handbook lying around that says, like, what are the odds that a, a planet is in Earth's habitable zone? <laughs> but he still gave the best conjecture he could with the technology at the time. And with the estimates of how big our galaxy and universe are. And he said there are at least 20 civilizations that should be able to communicate with humans the way humans would be able to communicate with them. And we're not speaking just language. We mean like technologically sending signals and receiving signals. Like radio waves. And uh, this, of course, uh, reflects the Fermi paradox, where this was his bare bones, hyper-conservative, stingiest estimate, like the number that he could not go any lower, no lower than 20 human technology civilizations in the Milky Way alone. That, of course, poses the question, why have we never detected any of them? If they can send radio signals at the speed of light and the uh, this galaxy is 100,000 light years long, 100,000 years in, in the terms of the universe is just a, a blip on the radar. I have an interesting thought experiment that can put it into perspective. A million seconds is 12 days. A billion seconds is 30 years. So when we talk about things like the universe is 30, 14.9 or 14 billion years old, it means that even if, say, it, if we were to continue with the analogy, even if it takes, say, a month to uh, take over an entire galaxy, you'd still have 360 years to do that. So that, of course, poses the question, even if um, it takes... A uh, hundred thousand years for a radio signal to go across the galaxy. Well, even if it's say a ten million year old civilization, well, that's plenty of time. Now we will leave a bit of time for you, the listener, to maybe think of some reasons that you may assume we have not contacted life or life has not contacted us before sharing some of the other proposed solutions to the Fermi paradox. Mm -hmm. Great. So hopefully you've uh, put some time and effort into this. Um, there are maybe a half dozen um, popular explanations to explain the absence of aliens. Uh, the first of which, which I think is the most simple and which I think Bill Nye, um, you can find on the internet, he gives this same answer. We have simply haven't done a good job looking so far. We've only been sending radio waves into the cosmos for 100 years or so. Um, if you look at a map of our Milky Way galaxy and the... Um, the subsection that we have sent radio waves to, it's like a tiny blip in a huge disk. Um, and also keep in mind, even though we've discovered 4,000 exoplanets, um, they're still so tiny and far away from our perspective that 
we can only generally detect the existence of it. We can't like zoom in on it the way we can with Google Maps and say, oh, look, there are shrubs and houses there. Um, so even if there was a planet only five light years away, uh, we wouldn't necessarily be able to immediately see that there is life on it. And Scott, you've been using the term exoplanet. Would you like to define it for our viewers, for our listeners? I feel like we we sort of missed that in the beginning. <laughs> oh, yeah, my bad. Exoplanets are simply any planet that orbits around a star other than our sun. Uh, as we speak, there's around 4,000 known exoplanets, and we have quite a different creative approaches of being able to deduce whether or not they exist on, on, around which stars. Um, but interestingly enough, the amount of exoplanets we know about is increasing exponentially, and so in the f next few years, it's it's going to at least double, maybe maybe even more. So I encourage you, the listener, to Google what the current exoplanet count is. So back to us and radio waves, um, sort of on a technological standpoint, when you to put into reference, if you look at a picture of, say, Pluto from like the 60s, it's it's just it's honestly just pixels. But if you look at it now, it's so much more well defined. Yeah. The second sort of answer to this paradox is based more around our technological growth and the technological advancement of other civilizations in reference to ours think about the last time you sent a telegraph and think about how often that people did that say back in the day when it was first becoming a thing so now we have far more advanced technology just in a short span of time but imagine an alien civilization and how if they had just started a hundred years prior to us even how much more advanced their signaling technology would be and maybe we're not even ready to receive the information that they're using to communicate. Yeah, um, I think that accurately sums up sums it up. Like, if we can go from telegraphs to radio signals to fiber optic messages within a hundred years, just imagine what an alien civil the way an alien civilization might communicate uh, one million years down the line. Maybe we're actually getting barraged by signals every day, but we just don't have the technology to understand them or receive them or even detect them. And also there's a great um, thought experiment by Neil deGrasse Tyson where he said, when was the last time you stopped and said hi to a squirrel? And even if you did, did you really expect a response back? In the same way, if an intergalactic spacefaring civilization discovers Earth, why would they bother to stop and say hi if... Earth technology civilizations are just a dime a dozen. Maybe the reason why they're not sending signals is because we're just not worthy of their time. Answer three, civilizations are meteoric. So thinking about in the grand scheme of things, how many species have existed on Earth since Earth's creation and how many of them are still around today, one can see that a species lifespan is maybe not as, or the longevity of a species may not be as long as we anticipate. So even if a civilization and intelligent life were to develop on another planet, the odds that the time frame in which their species existed coincides with when our species currently exists and is doing what we're doing now with technology and have having the availability to communicate is incredibly low. So... Assuming we did have those 20 civilizations, how many of them right now are still operating and could send and or receive signals? Mm -hmm. 
Uh, yeah, building off of that, uh, human agriculture has only existed for uh, less than 20,000 years. And in the 20th century, we almost destroyed ourselves in nuclear war. So if imagine that those 20 civilizations all only existed for less than 20,000 years over the span of the Milky Way's lifetime, which is 13, 14 billion years, the odds that those would align and be there at the same time are practically zero. Going back um, to the million seconds, billion seconds phenomenon, the idea that uh, if some organism exists for 12 days, the odds that they would line up over the span of 390 years is very, very low. And the next uh, proposed resolution is simply maybe interstellar travel is just really darn hard. The speed of light is painfully slow. Um, the I've, I think uh, the astronaut Victor Glover once said something like it costs $5,000 to send a water bottle into space because even something as light as that costs so much jet fuel and jet fuel is really expensive. So maybe um, it's just not worth uh, traveling parsecs all the way over to another uh, planet just to have more life. Maybe life on their own planet is fine enough and they have better things to do with their money. Maybe uh, Drake's more loose estimate really was accurate. Maybe there are 50 million um, civilizations in our something like 400 billion starred galaxy, but they each only occupy one solar system and so they've never bothered contacting each other. I mean, thinking about it in terms of our farthest probes and whatnot, mm -hmm. um, barely, barely reaching the outside of our solar system, as well as like nowhere close to entering mm -hmm. or coming in contact with another solar system. And imagine there was another set of beings. Why would, if they're already anticipating us contacting them, why would they try and contact us? It's the prisoner's dilemma. Both civilizations say, why bother spending the money going to the other planet? Why don't we just wait for the other planet to come to us? But they're both thinking that, so neither contacts the other. Yes. <laughs> Solution five. Maybe life is actually more rare than we think. Maybe the first premise about life being inevitable is flawed. Maybe we are just alone, lonely. The only life in the entire hypothetically infinite universe. A tiny fuzz on a grain of sand in an infinite beach. Cold and alone floating in the void. This to me is the scariest solution of them all. Spooky. The science fiction writer Arthur C. Clarke once said, Two possibilities exist. Either we are alone in the universe, or we are not. Both are equally terrifying. I have to agree. Yeah, I mean, but going back to what we were saying, even if we aren't alone in the universe, what are the odds we're going to run into anybody? <laughs> oh yeah, like this whole time we've just been talking about our galaxy, like Andromeda, the nearest galaxy, is something like two and a half million light years that even if you were to travel at the speed of light, it would take 2.5 million years. I mean, case in point, I'm pretty sure human language evolved around like 50,000 years ago. That's that, um, two times 
thousand times a hundred. My mental math is not good, but that is a very, very long time. So maybe if even if there are a hundred billion civilizations all spread to each galaxy and maybe civilizations have conquered entire galaxies, that the the ability to go from galactic to supergalactic or intergalactic that that seems almost an impossibility. And putting that time frame in terms of so moving at the fastest known speed, if we sent a ship now from Earth to the Andromeda galaxy, everything that is alive on Earth now would be a fossil fuel by that time <laughs> by the time we reached it. Oh man. Doesn't that just comment on the ephemerality of life? That we are globs of meat who consume other globs of meat to postpone the inevitable reaper. We summon the reaper of other organisms to postpone the ever-approaching dogs of death. <laughs> you know, there is one escape from an organic death, and that is digitization. Which is our sixth... Ah. Which is our sixth... In the ancient Akkadian language, you could not have two consonants together. So imagine he ever tried to pronounce the word sixth. Sixth. Answer to the question. <laughs> and that is computer simulations. Take it away, Matt. So looking back the, at the evolution of computers and computer capabilities, I mean, think of, say, the first video games. Tennis for two. And then think of the expansive worlds we have now in video games. And in virtual reality, no less. And then think of when we improve computers and maybe move on to things like quantum computers and things with faster processing that could look at probabilities of things more accurately or in better ways of programming, et cetera, et cetera. How advanced those simulations could be and how hyper-realistic they could be. Mm -hmm. in a sense. Moving on to that, we could imagine that somewhere there is a world where this computer exists. And this computer runs simulation upon simulation of billions of other worlds. And each universe is maybe slightly different or similar or has different probabilities, actions that happen. Much like in the parent world, the one like where the computer is actually working, or it doesn't. And then in some of those simulations, someone else will potentially find a way to make another computer that is powerful enough to simulate. And then they make another simulation that has billions of simulations, and they make another simulation that has billions of simulations. And one could... This is just a, a general theory of, uh, of if one were to make a computer simulation or a supercomputer that could simulate everything in the universe, then there would potentially be billions of simulations, and any given universe is more likely to be a simulation than the parent universe, which has the original computer. In terms of the Fermi paradox, the general thought process of it is, if you could simulate, say, going to another planet or interacting with another planet, why would you not do that rather than actually try and communicate with another planet? And if you're one of the theoretically infinite universes that can do this, why, I mean, then you would choose to do that in a sense. Yeah? Uh, yeah, I guess to sum all that meaty uh, thought experimenting into a sentence or two, if you can experience some hyper-realistic VR that you cannot tell the difference between the simulation and reality, 
why bother uh, spending all this money on going to another star when you can upload yourself to the cloud and experience euphoria and ecstasy for all eternity and condense billions of years into days. That yeah. sounds like a lot more fun than sitting around bored for 300 years on a spaceship. Sending out radio signals. Yeah, who, who cares? I want the simulation all to myself. Do you ever wonder if this entire universe is just like a high schooler's pr- like comp sci project in some parent universe? Yeah. Yeah. That, of course, poses the question, is it possible to digitize the human psyche to take our... This gets into some of a ship of Theseus from episode one. Like, could you take your neuron-based meaty calcium ion brain and connect it to an electron-silicon-based computer and upload your consciousness to it? And would that be you? Would it be you? Because if it was, it seems inevitable that aliens would say, like, why bother living in these meaty, fleshy shells that die after 70 years, depending on their lifespans, when we could just live for all eternity in this silicon, which hopefully doesn't rust as only iron rusts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in this silicon that doesn't rust, and maybe it's solar panel powered, and this sun's going to live for another trillion years. Sounds like a good trade-off to me. So maybe one day we'll land on a planet, and there's just going to be a bunch of old roads that no one's driven on in billions of years, and a huge matryoshka brain, or a huge computer that everyone's hooked up to, experiencing wonder and joy and good, wholesome family time for all eternity. That's beautiful. And it could be happening everywhere, infinitely. Everywhere. Maybe that's humanity's inevitable goal. The end of the world is not going to happen because we're going to live happily ever after. So those are the half dozen solutions that we have proposed here. Perhaps you can think of some more yourself. Perhaps you can... Uh, look it up on the internet because it has sparked a century or so of debate and uh, thinking. I'm going to close this off with a dad joke. Why do people not like to go to a restaurant on the moon? Why, Scott? Because it has no atmosphere. (laughs) This has been the The Phantasmagorical Spaceship. (laughs) Where am I? One last thought. Uh, it's estimated that the amount of dark matter in the Milky Way is about uh, nine times the amount of baryonic matter, known matter, um, 90% dark, 10% uh, known. Uh, so maybe all, even if there were um, 10 uh, civilizations in our universe, we're the only baryonic one, and the other nine are floating in the halo around the disk of the Milky Way, not interacting with light and being unable to see with see us. And probably unable to contact us for more or less the same reasons. Yeah, maybe they're sending some sort of beam that we have no idea what it is at us and we can't see it. Magic science. We hope you enjoyed our standalone re-release. Hope it encourages you to listen to the other segments when you find the time. Until next time, as always, we have been the, the Phantasmagorical Think Tank.